ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's your passport, your driver's licence or your Medicare card. That's normally how you have to prove who you are. But this week on Download This Show, the government is proposing a national identity scheme that will let people prove their identity digitally. But could such a scheme actually work and are the risks too great? Also on the show, Twitter has removed a feature that allows people to report disinformation on the platform and New York City has banned facial recognition in schools. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show and a very big welcome to our guest this week, uh, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast, Dr. Erica Mealy. Welcome back. Thank you. Don't know why my voice went up like that, but maybe I'll do the whole show like that. (laughs) That's not annoying at all, is it? Uh, Also joining us is Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Welcome back. Good to be back on with you, Mark. How do you feel about a digital ID? I have very, very mixed views about this. I very much would appreciate the convenience of not having to provide all my digital identification to 10,000 different services, real estate agents, banks, every time I want to apply for a new service. But at the same time, do we actually trust government to hold this and keep it secure? That is the, that is the question. And then at the moment, it's the proposal is voluntary completely. But if it becomes the only way that you can prove who you are and the government mandates it, then it raises a whole bunch of different questions as well. These are all very good questions, Erica. You've written about this. Uh, the government is proposing something at the moment, a, a national identity scheme. Before we get into the, the pros and cons of it, what exactly do we know is on the table at the moment? What's being discussed? Well, the interesting part of it is that it's kind of already happening and they're trying to bring it back into the legislation. So a number of years ago, the ATO bought out MyGov ID. Now, that's not the ID that you use for MyGov because apparently we couldn't come up with another name. It is a completely different uh, ID system. It's funny because when you say MyGov, I instantly break out in hot sweats, which is the same reaction I get whenever I get an email saying you have a new message on MyGov. It is, but it's not the same thing. Uh, So it is a way to digitally identify yourself. It's a bit like Google Authenticator for our techie friends who know what that is. It's this idea that you have an extra factor of authentication. So we work out who we are and we prove who we are by something we are. So our our biometrics, something we know, so like a password or something physical that we have access to. So that's normally when it sends you a text message on your phone and you type that into the window. So this is an attempt to move in that direction. But what it will actually be is you log into your app, show your face to the app and it will go, oh, yes, that's Erica. And then it will allow you to interface initially with government applications, but eventually with a public sort of private companies. So instead of having to dig out your, you know, Medicare card, passport, blah, 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 100 points of ID, you'll be able to log in and say, I'm going to use my MyGov ID, log into your app and say, I tell you, you're allowed to authenticate me for my bank. So the the idea is great. The how we're going about it does definitely raise some questions. What are the questions that are being raised in the how? So we all know that there are definitely some parts of the government where they're not going to tell us if there's a data breach uh, in the super secret, you know, 
information services and that sort of area. But we do also have some other ones. And it really was clear as mud when I was trying to actually have a look because on the uh, public information commissioner site, it says that uh, small businesses under $3 million turnover and state and federal government organisations are exempt. But then you go into the Act and it actually says that there's a number of state acts and also other coverages for a number of state organisations. Fair enough. But then you go, but what about federal? Are they included or are they not included? And who is included and which ones? And if there's a data breach, do they have to tell me? So even under our Privacy Act, political parties, registered political parties are exempt. So if they collect all our information to, you know, talk to us about the upcoming referendum and there's a data breach, they actually don't have to tell us. And that's my concern is that there's so many of these breaches and the government's a massive target. For you, Josh, what are the what are the questions you have about it? Yeah, I think it's it's similar sort of things. I, I think uh, the main question I would have is like, where is the data going to be stored? How secure is this data going to be? How long is it going to be stored for? And, and things like that. The other thing is like when I when I was initially looking at the this proposal, it is a mess of government agencies. You know, uh, mentioned before that it was like an ATO project initially, but also MyGov is, is is like a Services Australia or not Services Australia, but that department ownership. So there's so many different federal government agencies that sort of have this their hand in this pie already, and then. And you've got to lay over that. The states will be involved in it as well. So it is a lot of work to get wrangling, to get everyone to be on the same page of this. And I think that's probably the big thing. But conversely, although, you know, there is the argument that it can create this huge honeypot of, of information that is going to create a big issue down the track, it is still better than the situation we have now where hundreds of, of businesses would have our, this sort of information. I can't tell you how many rental places I've applied to that would have my entire financial <laughs> history and, and ID. Some of that will be resolved because they're also parallel to this um, updating the Privacy Act as well. And the small business exemption we mentioned before will be hopefully removed. <laughs> so that would mean that the small businesses will have to tell us when our data is breached. But the proposal at the moment is voluntary and so you don't have to opt in if you don't want to and there'll be other me- methods available for you. But you can see down the track at some point the government will be saying, no, you need to do this and you need to do this to access services. But So I guess we just need sort of a clear understanding of how this will be used and, and in what circumstances it will be used and how people can make sure if they're not comfortable with it, they have other ways to, to uh, pr- prove who they are, essentially. How does something like what's been proposed compare to what exists in other countries? Yeah, so a lot of other countries are in different parts of it. You know, you've got um, sort of, I guess, the more authoritarian style ones in China and India. The UK is in the process of developing one. It's not quite there yet. Canada is also in the process of developing one. Ours probably seems similar to the UK and the Canada models. You would find it very difficult to get the government to argue we, uh, we should have sort of a social credit style system as China. And I feel like that that's not the path that they would ever pursue. But it's really hard to sort of compare to anything else at the moment because we're all sort of in various stages of it. And Estonia is always sort of, I guess, the gold model in terms of, of having it for about almost two decades now, having some sort of digital ID. But that's because they've always been this sort of, um, I guess, technology forward country. So uh, I guess going back to the point about um, the issues with, with the government holding all this data as well. One thing that we, we saw pop up quite a bit during COVID with the COVID Safe app, I hate to bring it up again, but there was, there was a lot of talk about... Uh, the government holding information about every place that you checked in and everything like that back when we had to do that. And 
Apple and Google came up with a model that meant that all this data was held on your phone and you didn't actually have to upload it until you needed to if, if you got COVID and they need to do the check. And something like a digital ID could work like that too, like that, that ultimately the government doesn't hold the data. They might hold the key for it and be able to say, yes, this person is who they say they are, but all exists on your own device that way. Ultimately, you're in control of your personal information. I think that giving people as much control over their personal information is probably the best way to go for this. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, we have Dr. Erica Mealy from the University of the Sunshine Coast and from The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Mark Fennell is my name. And if you're scrolling through Twitter, yes, I'm persisting with calling it Twitter because X is a terrible name for a service, and you see something that's misleading, you know it's wrong. Can you report it? Well, Josh, that's about to get a little bit harder, isn't it? Well, yeah, it already is now. They've, they've uh, quietly, in the last couple of weeks, removed this uh, report uh, misleading information button that you were able to say this tweet uh, might be containing misleading information, then it would go to a team within Twitter to verify that and potentially take action against it. We knew that they probably weren't doing all this sort of stuff anyway because, uh, you know, under Musk, basically all those teams have been gutted anyway. The, um, uh, the, the safety team is basically gone now. And so they've basically replaced that now with what is called community notes. It, it basically could sort of crowdsource a response and say, this tweet doesn't have the right information. Here's, here's some information you might want to know for the context of it. So it's quite clear that, that Elon Musk was very unhappy with fact checkers, the fact checking industry, misinformation, things like that. He saw it as uh, censoring free speech. And so this is this has been taken down as, as part of the, the shift from, from this platform from what it used to be. Twitter is not a super financially successful company. So it seems apparent that things needed to be cut. I guess what I was trying to understand is, is this cut a financial thing? Or it's like, we don't need to do this in-house. We can use the wisdom of the crowd. Or is it an ideological thing? Like, Erica, do you have a take? I really think it's a, an ideological thing. And the reason I think that is that the EU came out basically and did a bit of a study and said that X or Twitter has the highest ratio of disinformation of the large social media platforms. And Musk put out a picture allegedly of three penguins bearing the logos of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter saluting to the penguin with the X logo. So it's like, yes, we're the best at open speech. I don't know. We're the best of the work. I, <laughs> I love that you really committed to it. Like you really got into character. <laughs> it was a vibe. Yeah. I really, I really struggled to get into his headspace because it's like, yeah, I'm going to take over Twitter. Great. We've lost 60% of our advertisers. What are we going to do now? How can we lose some more? Like what kind of business man does I just that? love that in your internal monologue, Elon Musk is shouting all the time. <laughs> Josh, you brought up uh, community notes, which is a function that I actually ha I have noticed quite a lot on, on Twitter where, you know, when people say something somewhat controversial, there's a bunch of comments underneath from the community saying, ah, other people say this. Well, firstly, evaluate it for me as, as a function. And, and do you think it works as effectively as having an, an in-house team that, you know, probably can't move as fast as the public? Yeah. So um, I think it's probably my favorite feature for that website among the diminishing features of that website <laughs> that I still enjoy. Um, it is quite good because it can probably tend to result in people who are right-leaning getting more of their notes on things getting up because just the who is on that platform now. It is sort of a, a moderating capability in terms of just pointing out when people are just saying stuff that's completely wrong. I saw one the other day. There was a journalist who was um, tweeting about how he'd 
paid something like $72 or something like that for an airport meal. And uh, the community note eventually came up saying that the um, that the restaurant had responded that most of that tab was alcohol. So uh, stuff like that is really useful. Um, but it does take a little while to filter through. And these things can tend to go viral before before these community notes are added and taken up. So, uh, I mean, by no means was Twitter perfect. I mean, you know, for years before this, constantly talking about how there was problems with misinformation on Twitter. Community notes does help it a little bit, but I still think that you need to have that safety team just to to, to be there. And, and to be fair, uh, I asked the AEC about this because obviously with the voice referendum, it's something that they're paying close attention to. And the AEC does respond to issues about how the, the referendum is being run. They don't actually... Uh, focus on the yes and the no campaign arguments, but just basically stuff like, you know, can you go and vote? How can you vote? Stuff like that. If there's misinformation about that, they'll approach uh, Twitter and ask them to to take stuff down and things like that. But they said that they realised that often their role is to be on that platform and, and correcting some of the stuff that's going around. If they've removed functions that allow them to manage misinformation, does it not create a situation where they can be taken to court for knowingly publishing misinformation should that occur, Erica? thought so. Though they have fought that um, and there's a lot of the platforms have kind of fought that essentially going, well, we're just providing the platform like it's not our responsibility. And I mean, the the issue, I guess, with we're just going to cover everything in community notes is that it's again about that volume of voices. I think we found during that, you know, the, the big P word that we don't like to mention, the pandemic, that, you know, sometimes less expert voices were found in quantity and, you know, these expert voices then were drowned out. And so uh, I fear with the community notes that that keeps going as well, that, you know, you might get a lot of notes on it from that right-leaning side or, you know, that kind of, you know, drowning out the the experts. So I, I would have thought that it would be opening them up for that, particularly, though, since they've actually pulled out of the code of practice uh, in the EU as well. But they seem to think that this is the panacea. This is the the ultimate way to deal with it. So I'm not sure why they're going that way, but I think that sums up everything about X at the moment in my mind. I mean, ultimately, uh, in the US, they've got Section 230, which prevents them from liability for things that are posted by users on their platform. Um, so that will prevent them from being sued in the US. Um in Australia, we've we've got the the voluntary misinformation disinformation code, which which as of uh, last time I checked, uh, X Twitter is still a member of, but that is still basically voluntary. And there's nothing within that code that basically says ACMA can then go to uh, Twitter and say you you have not taken this down, you're in violation of the code, things like that. It's more about like what are they doing to combat misinformation on the platform. Wait, are you telling me that a voluntary code? is not somehow <laughs> binding? One that was developed by the industry itself, no. <laughs> Are you saying that a voluntary code might be a little bit toothless, Josh? Yeah, it's funny that. I mean, mm. we, we can we can talk about how the, the federal government is now trying to legislate that to give the ACMA more powers to enforce this code, and that's created a whole bunch of controversy. You know, the, the draft bill for that got something like 5,000 submissions and things like that, and the opposition is basically making lots of George Orwell comparisons um, and there's, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of misinformation being floated around about that particular code, and and it does, uh, it does have issues, and I think that that's, you know, trying to enforce this uh, through legislation is maybe not the best thing to do, but it's just funny that like even just sort of this tiniest step to trying to enforce uh, platforms to live up to their own policies um, is is basically seen as you know 1984 all over again. Mm. All right, and interesting news coming out of New York State. Erica, they've banned facial recognition in schools. What exactly have they done? 
So they have installed originally, um, after you know a lot of the uh, school shootings that they had, a system that recognised facial um, characteristics, biometrics of their students. And the idea was to pick out people who shouldn't be there, which makes a lot of sense. But the problem very quickly became that there's an inherent bias in a lot of this. As we know, uh, a lot of our technology is built in a very small, not necessarily diverse area of San Francisco. And uh, so it has issues with skin colours, gender diversity and these kinds of things. So they temporarily uh, put a pause on it. And now they have actually officially banned it, finding that it is actually more harm than good to be able to recognise this, that the false positive rate, which is how we test a lot of our software, we look at, you know, false negatives, what did we miss? Uh, But also the false positives. How many times did we identify somebody who we shouldn't have identified? And the, the risk of identifying all of the indigenous students or all of the you know diverse skin students was just too high so they've now pulled it out and have said that they are banning in New York uh, having this in their schools given the sheer amount of facial recognition that exists in ooh, every other part of public life is this going to make much difference Josh uh, well I think that this is a good start I mean uh, Gen Z is already growing up as the the first generation that has basically had a camera in their face all the time. And I think that if we, you know, a lot of this facial recognition technology was rolled out without any sort of public discussion about it. You, you know, you'd walk into a supermarket and you'd see a sign saying, you know, your face is being recorded and things like that. And unless there's sort of news reports about, about it, sort of explaining why it might be a, a bad thing or controversial, uh, it kind of just goes unnoticed. And I think that if, if you're look, focusing on um, children as, a, as sort of the first stage and saying, hey, maybe this is a bad idea, that might be a good place to start for the discussion about the rest of the, the, the um, society. This this story in particular was fascinating to me because it's like um, the US spends something like billions and millions of dollars every year in schools, uh, upping security and things like that, and, and making all these technological solutions to what is the underlying problem, which is guns being able to get into schools in the first place. So uh, it seems to be, you know, a Band-Aid solution rather than addressing the underlying cause. Given it's only one state, is there likely to be more changes in other states, Erica? Well, I think it's it's interesting because they pulled out the stats that like 70% of school shooters were actually current students between 1980 and 2019. And so really it comes down to is it actually, like Josh said, is it even going to try and prevent anything? Is this surveillance for surveillance sake? So the EU has actually come out with um, a ban, part of their AI Act, talking about not using what they call remote biometric identification uh, because we need more acronyms. It's interesting and I think it's open to bigger conversation. The other thing I'd, I'd probably add as well is that I, I, when I was looking into this, that in Australia, they, they are using this, some of this technology too, and, and it is being used basically for convenience sake. If, say, you have a large uh, classroom where you need to do roll call and things like that, they are finding that you can they, there is a technology solution where you can have facial recognition that makes it easier to sort of identify who's in your class without having to you know call out names. That'd be great. Then I don't have to learn their names. <laughs> It'd just be great. Like, you know, 500 uni students and it's just like, Paul's not here today. Fantastic. I wouldn't have to learn 500 names. I, I'm kind of curious about 
I guess, the long-term impacts of generations kind of knowing that their faces are being recorded all the time. I wonder if that changes online behaviour. Like, do you see the rise of sort of more ephemeral apps where people can have everything deleted uh, and and nothing gets stored forever? I'm I'm wondering, do you think there's like a behavioural change that comes with sort of generations knowing that a million different services are collecting their data all the time, Josh? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely going to be start to be a pushback. Um, you know, you see you see a bit of it, um, particularly among millennial parents now, where they're not putting their children's faces on on their social media for quite a for quite a while while they're growing up, and basically giving them sort of the choice to do it. One thing that I heard recently that that quite uh, terrified me a little bit was that there's this there's this app that's around now where you, if you uh, see someone on the street, you can take a photo of them and then find their social media, find their name through you know just scanning a facial database and things like that. And I think that that is quite terrifying because it means that your your right to privacy walking around public is basically gone. And I think if that becomes sort of widespread and, and a, sort of a big thing that people use, people might start to say, hey, we need to slow down, we need to stop this and, and basically give people back, I guess, the ownership of their data and the ownership of their, their, their right to privacy, essentially. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And uh, in the last week, there's been a massive backlash to an AI startup that... Uh, well, the simple version of it is that it it collected an untold number of books. And when I say collected, it seems like the collection of books they got was probably pirated. And from that, they've been able to confect different AI writer styles. Understandably, authors all over the world, and particularly in Australia uh, over the last week, were incensed by this. And the AI company shut down. The reason I bring it up is not because there's uh, an AI screw-up of the week. It's more the question of... Can you develop AI technology? Like, what's the future of the development of AI if every time something like this happens, there's going to be a massive reaction? Justified though it may well be. Josh? Yeah, so I think what we're going to see is that there's going to be a lot of sort of ethical development of AI. You know, um, uh, when Adobe launched its its Photoshop that has AI involved, they, they're very quick to point out that uh, it was trained on database of, of licensed content. You've got Getty doing the same thing after Getty was quite annoyed that, that its images were getting sucked up into other people's AIs. Uh, even even in Australia, we saw recently the AFP doing a call out for training its own AI database to to find child exploitation material by getting the public to upload images of themselves as children, uh, basically to help train that. So I think that there's... Uh, there is a push. There is sort of a, a, a movement for ethical development of AI. I guess the issue is that uh, for all the companies that are doing it the right way, there's going to be these shady companies that do it the wrong way and, and don't really have any care about uh, you know doing the right thing and things like that. So they, if the company is shamed into stop stopping doing that, but they keep sort of the algorithm, it's it's really hard to sort of put the toothpaste back in the in the tube essentially and and. Uh, untrain the algorithm on the stuff that it's already learned unless you start from scratch. So it's one of those things that uh, I think we're, we're going to see. It's going to be sort of a weekly thing where, where someone finds something of theirs in, in AI and, and we, we, we express outrage and move on to the next company. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that in this particular case, it does appear that the the way in which they train the AI was through books that were probably not paid for. That at least appears to be the inference and the source of a lot of the outrage. But I, I, I guess the thing that I've been sort of thinking about is this technology it's not inevitable, right? It, 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 it requires development. It requires people to want to put in time and effort. And the sort of the sheer number of sort of scandals and outrages we've had over the last couple of months make me think, is this an inflection point, Erica, where we, da- we now need to have a communally understood set of ethics about how we're going to develop this, this technology? Yes, 
Absolutely. And I, I think the fact that technology has been kind of launch first, think later for a while. The fact that we had open AI going, actually, this could be an extinction level event. It's like, well, did you not think about this before you released the genie from the bottle? Yeah, we really need to start thinking about and and just generally understanding licensing. I've spoken to, to people in our local industries. I'm like, you do know you can't just screenshot any picture on Google. Oh, but Google gave it to me. So it's in the public domain. I must be able to. No, somebody owns that. So I, I think we really have to start generating that that understanding of what what is public domain? What are we putting in the public domain about our own data and about you know facial recognition and all those kinds of things? But also, you know, what is fair use and what isn't fair use and what is copyright and what does it mean in the global context? Because that's part of the challenge as well. You're, you're only good as the country you're legislating inside or you're trying to enforce it inside. So there's a lot of countries that don't have the same kind of copyright protection as we do in the US and the EU do. So it, it's definitely well past time for us to have those conversations about ethics and, and AI and, and what does it mean? And I think a lot of Companies as well are also very concerned about people using the generative AI. So I know there are a couple of big tech companies that basically forbade its use because we don't even know what happens to information we put in there. So I know of academics who've written a paper and then thrown it into chat GPT to fix the grammar. And it's like, well, but you've just disclosed that. You know, if you're going for a patent, that would count as a disclosure. You wouldn't be able to pre- protect that IP anymore because you've lost control of where that data's gone. So I think it's um, well overdue um, and we definitely need to have these conversations. And I think the more outrage <laughs> that we're, we're stirring up, the more people are starting to actually pay attention that there is something we need to talk about. Is there a pathway forward uh, that you can see, Josh, where AI can be developed in a way that is sort of ethical and also it is done with sort of broad community buy-in? I guess it's a cliche to say there's no real stopping it at this point in time, but um, it seems like it is. The acceleration of AI just in the past few months has been just mind-blowing. Things that, that were quite difficult to do even a year ago just seem to be accelerating. And I think that people will get on board. I think that there does need to be a regulatory framework in place and, and the, the federal government has been looking at this um, and, and moving relatively quickly on this. I mean, I guess it's every sort of discussion that we have around technology, right? It becomes that balance between what is convenient to the user and what they're handing over in exchange for that. And I think that that's something that is still sort of being worked out. And, you know, in, there are so many different aspects to AI that we often don't even really think about consciously that sort of grouping it all together is probably not really useful. It's something that we're going to have to work out on a case-by-case basis as, as these things pop up, I think. I also think some of the conversations had around the uh, rise of AI, and I do think there's a sort of a, a rising wave of anxiety. Is that anxiety justified, Erica? Do you think, do you think that that's where we should be as a culture? You know, these people that are known for their style and, you know, really particular how they do things, then I think that anxiety is justified. This is this is their livelihood and suddenly they can be replaced. And I think that's itself is is really quite a challenge. I think it's almost going to be, you know, a, an issue of anxiety around creativity. Like, do we really trust computers to be creative? Probably not. And so are we de-incentivizing, you know, people going into creative careers because they can be replaced? 
to be honest, it's the same pattern that happens in society every time we get a disruptive technology. So, you know, the, the industrial revolution, the types of jobs changed. And so some jobs disappeared and some new jobs came. And at the time, there, there would have been this kind of anxiety and, and change. And, you know, most humans don't like a whole lot of change. We need to find our way through it and map our way through it. And I think that's what these backlashes are really about. It's like, well, hang on, what does this mean? Should we have allowed this to happen or should we continue to allow it? And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Dr. Erica Mealy, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian, thank you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy the show, I'm loving being back. Please do leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to be perusing us on. Perusing the right word there? You can say. Uh, Until next time, my name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to Download This Show. There's your passport, your driver's licence or your Medicare card. That's normally how you have to prove who you are. But this week on Download This Show, the government is proposing a national identity scheme that will let people prove their identity digitally. But could such a scheme actually work and are the risks too great? Also on the show, Twitter has removed a feature that allows people to report disinformation on the platform and New York City has banned facial recognition in schools. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show and a very big welcome to our guest this week, uh, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast, Dr. Erica Mealy. Welcome back. Thank you. Don't know why my voice went up like that, but maybe I'll do the whole show like that. <laughs> That's not annoying at all, is it? Uh, also joining us is Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Welcome back. Good to be back on with you, Mark. How do you feel about a digital ID? I have very, very mixed views about this. I very much would appreciate the convenience of not having to provide all my digital identification to 10,000 different services, real estate agents, banks, every time I want to apply for a new service. But at the same time, do we actually trust government to hold this and keep it secure? That is the, that is the question. And then at the moment, it's the proposal is voluntary completely. But if it becomes the only way that you can prove who you are and the government mandates it, then it raises a whole bunch of different questions as well. These are all very good questions, Erica. You've written about this. Uh, the government is proposing something at the moment, a, a national identity scheme. Before we get into the, the pros and cons of it, what exactly do we know is on the table at the moment? What's being discussed? Well, the interesting part of it is that it's kind of already happening and they're trying to bring it back into the legislation. So a number of years ago, the ATO bought out MyGovID. Now, that's not the ID that you use for MyGov because apparently we couldn't come up with another name. It is a completely different uh, (laughs) ID system. It's funny because when you say MyGov, I instantly break out in hot sweats, uh, which is the same reaction I get whenever I get an email saying you have a new message on MyGov. 
It is, but it's not the same thing. Uh, so it is a way to digitally identify yourself. It's a bit like Google Authenticator for our techie friends who know what that is. It's this idea that you have an extra factor of authentication. So we work out who we are and we prove who we are by something we are. So our, our biometrics, something we know, so like a password or something physical that we have access to. So that's normally when it sends you a text message on your phone and you type that into the window. So this is an attempt to move in that direction. But what it will actually be is you log into your app, show your face to the app and it will go, oh, yes, that's Erica. And then it will allow you to interface initially with government applications, but eventually with a public sort of private companies. So instead of having to dig out your, you know, Medicare card, passport, blah, 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 100 points of ID, you'll be able to log in and say, oh, I'm going to use my MyGov ID, log into your app and say, I tell you, you're allowed to authenticate me for my bank. So the, the idea is great. The how we're going about it does definitely raise some questions. What are the questions that are being raised in the how? So we all know that there are definitely some parts of the government where they're not going to tell us if there's a data breach uh, in the super secret, you know, information services and that sort of area. But we do also have some other ones. And it really was clear as mud when I was trying to actually have a look, because on the a public information commissioner site, it says that uh, small businesses under $3 million turnover and state and federal government organisations are exempt. But then you go into the Act and it actually says that there's a number of state acts and also other coverages for a number of state organisations. Fair enough. But then you go, but what about federal? Are they included or are they not included? And who is included and which ones? And if there's a data breach, do they have to tell me? So even under our Privacy Act, political parties, registered political parties are exempt. So if they collect all our information to, you know, talk to us about the upcoming referendum and there's a data breach, they actually don't have to tell us. And that's my concern is that there's so many of these breaches and the government's a massive target. For you, Josh, what are the, what are the questions you have about it? Yeah, I think it's it's similar sort of things. I, I think uh, the main question I, I would have is like, where is the data going to be stored? How secure is this data going to be? How long is it going to be stored for? And, and things like that. The other thing is like, when I when I was initially looking at the this proposal, it is a mess of government agencies. You know, uh, mentioned before that it was like an ATO project initially, but also MyGov is, is is like a Services Australia or not Services Australia, but that department ownership. So there's so many different federal government agencies that sort of have this their hand in this pie already, and then. And you've got to lay over that. The states will be involved in it as well. So it is a lot of work to get wrangling, to get everyone to be on the same page of this. And I think that's probably the big thing. But conversely, although, you know, there is the argument that it can create this huge honeypot of, of information that is going to create a big issue down the track, it is still better than the situation we have now where hundreds of, of businesses would have our, this sort of information. I can't tell you how many rental places I've applied to that would have my entire financial <laughs> history and, and ID. Some of that will be resolved because they're also parallel to this um, updating the Privacy Act as well. And the small business exemption we mentioned before will be hopefully removed. <laughs> so that would mean that the small businesses will have to tell us when our data is breached. But the proposal at the moment is voluntary. And so you don't have to opt in if you don't want to. And there'll be other me methods available for you. But you can see down the track at some point the government will be saying, no, you need to do this and you need to do this to access services. But So I guess we just need sort of a clear 
understanding of how this will be used and, and in what circumstances it'll be used and how people can make sure if they're not comfortable with it, they have other ways to, to uh, pr- prove who they are, essentially. How does something like what's been proposed compare to what exists in other countries? Yeah, so a lot of other countries are in different parts of it. You know, you've got um, sort of, I guess, the more authoritarian style ones in China and India. The UK is in the process of developing one. It's not quite there yet. Canada is also in the process of developing one. Ours probably seems similar to the UK and the Canada models. You would find it very difficult to get the government to argue we, uh, we should have sort of a social credit style system as China. And I feel like that that's not the path that they would ever pursue. But it's really hard to sort of compare to anything else at the moment because we're all sort of in various stages of it. And, and Estonia is always sort of, I guess, the gold model in terms of, of having it for about almost two decades now, having some sort of digital ID. But that's because they've always been this sort of, um, I guess, technology forward country. So uh, I guess going back to the point about um, the issues with, with the government holding all this data as well. One thing that we, we saw pop up quite a bit during COVID with the COVID safe app, I hate to bring it up again, but there was, there was a lot of talk about... Uh, the government holding information about every place that you checked in and everything like that back when we had to do that. And Apple and Google came up with a model that meant that all this data was held on your phone and you didn't actually have to upload it until you needed to if, if you got COVID and they need to do the check. And something like a digital ID could work like that too, like that, that ultimately the government doesn't hold the data. They might hold the key for it and be able to say, yes, this person is who they say they are, but all exists on your own device. That way, ultimately you're in control of your personal information. I think that giving people as much control over their personal information is probably the best way to go for this. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, we have Dr. Erica Mealy from the University of the Sunshine Coast and from The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Mark Fennell is my name. And if you're scrolling through Twitter, yes, I'm persisting with calling it Twitter because X is a terrible name for a service, and you see something that's misleading, you know it's wrong. Can you report it? Well, Josh, that's about to get a little bit harder, isn't it? Well, yeah, it already is now. They've, they've uh, quietly, in the last couple of weeks, removed this uh, report uh, misleading information button that you were able to say this tweet uh, might be containing misleading information and then it would go to a team within Twitter to verify that and potentially take action against it. We knew that they probably weren't doing all this sort of stuff anyway because, uh, you know, under Musk, basically all those teams have been gutted anyway. Um, uh, the, the safety team is basically gone now. And so they've basically replaced that now with what is called community notes. It, it basically called sort of crowdsource a response and say, this tweet doesn't have the right information. Here's, here's some information you might want to know for the context of it. So it's quite clear that, that Elon Musk was very unhappy with fact checkers, the fact checking industry, misinformation, things like that. He saw it as uh, censoring free speech. And so this is this has been taken down as, as part of the, the shift from, from this platform from what it used to be. Twitter is not a super financially successful company. So it seems apparent that things needed to be cut. I guess what I was trying to understand is, is this cut a financial thing? Or it's like, we don't need to do this in-house. We can use the wisdom of the crowd. Or is it an ideological thing? Like, Erica, do you have a take? I really think it's a, an ideological thing. And the reason I think that is that the EU came out basically and did a bit of a study and said that X or Twitter has the highest ratio of disinformation of the large social media platforms. And Musk put out a picture allegedly of three penguins bearing the logos of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter saluting to the penguin with the X logo. So it's like, yes, we're the best at open speech. I don't know. We're the best of the work. 
I love that you really committed to it. Like you really got into character. <laughs> it was a vibe. Yeah, I really, I really struggled to get into his headspace because it's like, yeah, I'm going to take over Twitter. Great. We've lost 60% of our advertisers. What are we going to do now? How can we lose some more? Like what kind of business man does that? I just that? love that in your internal monologue, Elon Musk is shouting all the time. <laughs> Josh, you brought up uh, community notes, which is a function that I actually ha- I have noticed quite a lot on, on Twitter where, you know, when people say something somewhat controversial, there's a bunch of comments underneath from the community saying, ah, other people say this. Well, firstly, evaluate it for me as, as a function. And, and do you think it works as effectively as having an in-house team that, you know, probably can't move as fast as the public? Yeah. So um, I think it's probably my favourite feature for that website among the diminishing features of that (laughs) website that I still enjoy. Um, It is quite good because it can probably tend to result in people who are right-leaning getting more of their notes on things getting up because just the who is on that platform now. It is sort of a a moderating capability in terms of just pointing out when people are just saying stuff that's completely wrong. I saw one the other day. There was a journalist who was um, tweeting about how he paid something like $72 or something like that for an airport meal. And uh, the community note eventually came up saying that um, that the restaurant had responded that most of that tab was alcohol. So uh, stuff like that is really useful. Um, But it does take a little while to filter through. And these things can tend to go viral before before these community notes are added and taken up. So uh, I mean, by no means was Twitter perfect. I mean, you know, for years before this, constantly talking about how there was problems with misinformation on Twitter. Community notes does help it a little bit, but I still think that you need to have that safety team just to to, to be there. And, and to be fair, uh, I asked the AEC about this because obviously with the voice referendum, it's something that they're paying close attention to. And the AEC does respond to issues about how the, the referendum is being run. They don't actually... Uh, focus on the yes and the no campaign arguments, but just basically stuff like, you know, can you go and vote? How can you vote? Stuff like that. If there's misinformation about that, they'll approach uh, Twitter and ask them to to take stuff down and things like that. But they said that they realised that often their role is to be on that platform and, and correcting some of the stuff that's going around. If they've removed functions that allow them to manage misinformation... Does it not create a situation where they can be taken to court for knowingly publishing misinformation should that occur, Erica? I would have thought so, though they have fought that um, and there's a lot of the platforms have kind of fought that, essentially going, well, we're just providing the platform like it's not our responsibility. And, I mean, the the issue, I guess, with we're just going to cover everything in community notes is that it's, again, about that volume of voices. I think we found during that, you know, the, the big P word that we don't like to mention, the pandemic, that, you know, sometimes less expert voices were found in quantity and, you know, these expert voices then were drowned out. And so uh, I fear with the community notes that that keeps going as well, that, you know, you might get a lot of notes on it from that right-leaning side or, you know, that kind of, you know, drowning out the the experts. So I, I would have thought that it would be opening them up for that, particularly, though, since they've actually pulled out of the code of practice uh, in the EU as well. But they seem to think that this is the panacea. This is the the ultimate way to deal with it. So I'm not sure why they're going that way, but I think that sums up everything about X at the moment in my mind. I mean, ultimately, uh, in the US, they've got Section 230, which prevents them from liability for things that are posted up by users on their platform. Um, so that will prevent them from being sued in the US. Um 
in Australia, we've, we've got the, the voluntary misinformation, disinformation code, which, which as of uh, last time I checked, uh, X Twitter is still a member of, but that is still basically voluntary. And there's nothing within that code that basically says ACMA can then go to uh, Twitter and say, you, you have not taken this down, you're in violation of the code, things like that. It's more about like, what are they doing to combat misinformation on the platform? Wait, are you telling me that a voluntary code is not somehow <laughs> binding? One that was developed by the industry itself, no. <laughs> Are you saying that a voluntary code might be a little bit toothless, Josh? Yeah, it's funny that. I mean, mm. we, we can we can talk about how the, the federal government is now trying to legislate that to give the ACMA more powers to enforce this code, and that's created a whole bunch of controversy. You know, the, the draft bill for that got something like 5,000 submissions and things like that, and the opposition is basically making lots of George Orwell comparisons um, and there's, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of misinformation being floated around about that particular code, and and it does, uh, it does have issues, and I think that that's, you know, trying to enforce this uh, through legislation is maybe not the best thing to do, but it's just funny that like even just sort of this tiniest step to trying to enforce uh, platforms to live up to their own policies um, is is basically seen as you know 1984 all over again. Mm. All right. And interesting news coming out of New York State. Erica, they've banned facial recognition in schools. What exactly have they done? So they have installed originally um, after, you know, a lot of the uh, school shootings that they had, a system that recognised facial um, characteristics, biometrics of their students. And the idea was to pick out people who shouldn't be there which makes a lot of sense. But the problem very quickly became that there's an inherent bias in a lot of this. As we know, uh, a lot of our technology is built in a very small, not necessarily diverse area of San Francisco. And uh, so it has issues with skin colours, uh, gender diversity and these kinds of things. So they temporarily uh, put a pause on it. And now they have actually officially banned it, finding that it is actually more harm then good to be able to recognise this, that the false positive rate, which is how we test a lot of our software, we look at, you know, false negatives, what did we miss? Uh, but also the false positives. How many times did we identify somebody who we shouldn't have identified? And the, the risk of identifying all of the Indigenous students or all of the, you know, diverse skin students was just too high. So they've now pulled it out and have said that they are banning in New York uh, having this in their schools. Given the sheer amount of facial recognition that exists in ooh, every other part of public life, is this going to make much difference, Josh? Uh, well, I think that this is a good start. I mean, uh, Gen Z is already growing up as the, the first generation that has basically had a camera in their face all the time. And I think that if we, you know, a lot of this facial recognition technology was rolled out without any sort of public discussion about it. You, you know, you'd walk into a supermarket and you'd see a sign saying, you know, your face is being recorded and things like that. And unless there's sort of news reports about it, about it sort of explaining why it might be a, a bad thing or controversial, uh, it kind of just goes unnoticed. And I think that if, if you're look, focusing on um, children as, a, as sort of the first stage and saying, hey, maybe this is a bad idea, that might be a good place to start for the discussion about the rest of the, the, the um, society. This this story in particular was fascinating to me because it's like um, the US spends something like billions and millions of dollars every year in schools, uh, upping security and things like that, and and making all these technological solutions to what is the underlying problem, which is guns being able to get into schools in the first place. So uh, it seems to be you know a band aid solution rather than addressing the underlying cause. Given it's only one state, is there likely to be more changes in other states, Erica? 
Well, I think it's it's interesting because they pulled out the stats that like 70% of school shooters were actually current students between 1980 and 2019. And so really it comes down to is it actually like Josh said, is it even going to try and prevent anything? Is this surveillance for surveillance sake? So the EU has actually come out with um, a ban, part of their AI Act, talking about not using what they call remote biometric identification uh, because we need more acronyms. It's interesting and I think it's open to bigger conversation. The other thing I'd, I'd probably add as well is that I, I, when I was looking into this, that in Australia, they, they are using this, some of this technology too, and, and it is being used basically for convenience sake. If, say, you have a large uh, classroom where you need to do roll call and things like that, they are finding that you can they, there is a technology solution where you can have facial recognition that makes it easier to sort of identify who's in your class without having to you know call out names. That'd be great. Then I don't have to learn their names. <laughs> It'd just be great. Like, you know, 500 uni students and it's just like, Paul's not here today. Fantastic. I wouldn't have to learn 500 names. I, I'm kind of curious about, I guess, the long-term impacts of generations kind of knowing that their faces are being recorded all the time. I wonder if that changes online behaviour. Like, do you see the rise of sort of more ephemeral apps where people can have everything deleted uh, and, and nothing gets stored forever? I'm, I'm wondering, do you think there's like a behavioural change that comes with sort of generations knowing that a million different services are collecting their data all the time, Josh? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely going to be start to be a pushback. Um you know, you see, you see a bit of it, um, particularly among millennial parents now, where they're not putting their children's faces on on their social media for quite a for quite a while while they're growing up, and basically giving them sort of the choice to do it. One thing that I heard recently that that quite uh, terrified me a little bit was that there's this there's this app that's around now where you, if you uh, see someone on the street, you can take a photo of them and then find their social media, find their name through you know just scanning a facial database and things like that. And I think that that is quite terrifying because it means that your your right to privacy walking around public is basically gone. And I think if that becomes sort of widespread and, and a, sort of a big thing that people use, people might start to say, hey, we need to slow down, we need to stop this and, and basically give people back, I guess, the ownership of their data and the ownership of their, their, their right to privacy, essentially. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And uh, in the last week, there's been a massive backlash to an AI startup that, uh, well, the simple version of it is that it, it collected an untold number of books. And when I say collected, it seems like the collection of books they got was probably pirated. And from that, they've been able to confect different AI writer styles. Understandably, authors all over the world, and particularly in Australia uh, over the last week, were incensed by this. And the AI company shut down. The reason I bring it up is not because there's uh, an AI screw up of the week. It's more the question of, can you develop AI technology like, what's the future of the development of AI if every time something like this happens, there's going to be a massive reaction? Justified though it may well be, Josh. Yeah, so I think what we're going to see is that there's going to be a lot of sort of ethical development of AI. You know, um, uh, when Adobe launched its its Photoshop that has AI involved, they, they're very quick to point out that uh, it was trained on a database of, of licensed content. You've got Getty doing the same thing after Getty was quite annoyed that, that its images were getting sucked up into other people's AIs. Uh, even even in Australia, we saw recently the AFP doing a call out for training its own AI database to, to find child exploitation material by getting the public to upload images of themselves as children, uh, basically to help train that. So I think that there's... Uh, there is a push. There is sort of a, a, a movement for ethical development of AI. I guess the issue is that 
uh, for all the companies that are doing it the right way, there's going to be these shady companies that do it the wrong way and, and don't really have any care about, uh, you know, doing the right thing and things like that. So they, if the company is shamed into stop stopping doing that, but they keep sort of the algorithm, it's it's really hard to sort of put the toothpaste back in the in the tube, essentially, and and uh, untrain the algorithm on the stuff that it's already learned, unless you start from scratch. So, it's one of those things that uh, I think we're we're going to see. It's going to be sort of a weekly thing where where someone finds something of theirs in in AI, and and we we, we express outrage and move on to the next company. <laughs> Yeah, it's worth pointing out that in this particular case, it does appear that the the way in which they train the AI was through books that were probably not paid for. That at least appears to be the inference and the source of a lot of the outrage. But I, I, I guess the thing that I've been sort of thinking about is this technology it's not inevitable, right? It, 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 it requires development, it requires people to want to put in time and effort. And the sort of the sheer number of sort of scandals and outrages we've had over the last couple of months make me think is this an inflection point, Erica, where we da- we now need to have a communally understood set of ethics about how we're going to develop this this technology? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think the fact that technology has been kind of launch first, think later for a while, the fact that we had OpenAI going, actually, this could be an extinction level event. It's like, well, did you not think about this before you released the genie from the bottle? Yeah, we really need to start thinking about and and just generally understanding licensing. I've spoken to, to people in our local industries. I'm like, you do know you can't just screenshot any picture on Google. Oh, but Google gave it to me. So it's in the public domain. I must be able to. No, somebody owns that. So I, I think we really have to start generating that that understanding of what what is public domain. What are we putting in the public domain about our own data and about you know facial recognition and all those kinds of things. But also you know what is fair use and what isn't fair use and what is copyright and what does it mean in the global context because that's part of the challenge as well. You're you're only good as the country you're legislating inside or you're trying to enforce it inside. So there's a lot of countries that don't have the same kind of copyright protection as we do in the US and the EU do. So it's definitely well past time for us to have those conversations about ethics and and AI and, and what does it mean. And I think a lot of companies as well are also very concerned about people using the generative AI. So I know there are a couple of big tech companies that basically forbade its use because we don't even know what happens to information we put in there. So I know of academics who've written a paper and then thrown it into chat GPT to fix the grammar. And it's like, well, but you've just disclosed that. You know, if you're going for a patent, that would count as a disclosure. You wouldn't be able to pre- protect that IP anymore because you've lost control of where that data's gone. So I think it's um, well overdue um, and we definitely need to have these conversations. And I think the more outrage <laughs> that we're, we're stirring up, the more people are starting to actually pay attention that there is something we need to talk about. Is there a pathway forward uh, that you can see, Josh, where AI can be developed in a way that is sort of ethical and also it is done with sort of broad community buy-in. I guess it's a cliche to say there's no real stopping it at this point in time, but um, it seems like it is the acceleration of AI just in the past few months has been just mind-blowing. Things that, that were quite difficult to do even a year ago just seem to be accelerating. And I think that People will get on board. I think that there does need to be a regulatory framework in place, and and the the federal government has been looking at this um, and and moving relatively quickly on this. I mean, it's it's every sort of discussion that we have around technology, right? It it becomes that balance between what is convenient 
to the user and what they're handing over in exchange for that. And I think that that's something that is still sort of being worked out. And, you know, in, there are so many different aspects to AI that we often don't even really think about consciously that sort of grouping it all together is probably not really useful. It's something that we're going to have to work out on a case-by-case basis as, as these things pop up, I think. I also think some of the conversations had around the uh, rise of AI, and I do think there's a sort of a, a rising wave of anxiety is that anxiety justified, Erica? Do you think do you think that that's where we should be as a culture? You know, these people that are known for their style and, you know, really particular how they do things, then I think that anxiety is justified. This is this is their livelihood and suddenly they can be replaced and I think that's itself is is really quite a challenge. I think it's almost going to be you know, a, an issue of anxiety around creativity. Like do we really trust computers to be creative? Probably not. And so are we de-incentivizing, you know, people going into creative careers because they can be replaced? To be honest, it's the same pattern that happens in society every time we get a disruptive technology. So, you know, the, the industrial revolution, the types of jobs changed. And so some jobs disappeared and some new jobs came. And at the time, there, there would have been this kind of anxiety and, and change. And, you know, most humans don't like a whole lot of change. We need to find our way through it and map our way through it. And I think that's what these backlashes are really about. It's like, well, hang on, what does this mean? Should we have allowed this to happen or should we continue to allow it? And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week, Dr. Erica Mealy, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy the show, I'm loving being back. Please do leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to be perusing us on. Is perusing the right word there? You can say. Uh, Until next time, my name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.